Dear Father, I thank you so much that you are a speaking God. You are not silent about who you are and about what you call us to do. You don't leave us to figure out what it looks like to be human. You sent your son, the perfect human, to live the life we could never live and die the death that we deserve to die. I thank you for Jesus. I pray that he would help us now. Help us as we look at your word. I pray that you would just unite our hearts together to fear your name this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, well, how many of you watch or read the news or listen to the news on any kind of basis, even once a month? You just kind of, do we still have a president? <laughs> you, you check the news, right? Would you say that our country is unified right now? No. Um, I'd say our unity is pretty shattered in a lot of areas. Things are really broken. But, lest you think, has it ever been this bad? Remember 160 years ago? What was there in America? Civil War. 620,000 Americans killed. By who? Americans. Brothers shooting brothers and then finding their bodies and weeping. Civil War. Unbelievable. We look at the Senate floor and we think, look at the chaos right now. They're just, it's crazy. 165 or so years ago, one senator whipped out his cane and beat another senator almost to death on the floor of the Senate while everyone was watching. Those were the type of things that were stirring before the Civil War happened. Everybody is like, pass the popcorn. Yeah, this is getting good. You know, like, at least that's not happening. All right. So our Senate was broken and they disagreed about something tragic, among other things. But one of the most fundamental things they disagreed about back then was whether or not an African-American should be granted the full rights of personhood. So for all the trash talking and the tempers raging today, at least we're not beating each other physically, but that could happen if things keep going the way that they're going. Our president is on trial, right? Basically by the party that wants him gone and knows this might be their only chance at getting a Democrat in the White House. We as a nation, we can't agree on racial reconciliation issues. We know whites and blacks should get along, but how to make that happen? Nobody agrees. It's so easy to be called a racist nowadays, right? Splitting our country apart. We can't agree on economics. And tragically, we can't even agree on the fact whether or not every baby deserves the full rights of personhood. 
New York leads the charge in dehumanizing and depersonalizing the unborn child. They are not a person, according to our government. They have no rights. And one of our political parties in this country even makes the right to deny the personhood of infants a major pillar of its platform. <clears throat> to the man, they all agree, a baby is not a person. On another front, our nation can't agree on sex and gender issues. We could go on and on. We are a divided nation. The political front is just one front. The American home is divided. More and more homes are being broken by divorce. About 50%, they say. What's the number one reason given? Just Google it. Conflict about money. That's the number one reason. Why? We live in America. More money than ever any nation has ever had at any time. And what does money spending say? It says what your heart loves. And when two loves come up against each other in a home, they fight. Families in chaos. Churches are in chaos. Often about money, right? But Christians have fought about a lot of things over the last 2,000 years. Sometimes churches have actually fought about things that are worth fighting for. Heretics, false teachers, bring in false gospels. And the true church stands up and says, get out of here. That came from hell. That's a doctrine of demons. You are not to teach that here. We fight about truth. Tragically, though, churches fight about things that are far less significant. Things that are not related to the truths of the Bible, but more about the opinions of the people. So in all these areas of disunity, in our nation, in our families, in our churches, one thing is always the same. What unites all these areas of division? Well, there's no common mind. No one way of thinking that would preserve unity. Imagine in a home where there's a lot of chaos and conflict, and then one of the children gets sick, really sick. All of a sudden, in the moment, mom and dad put everything down and they focus on the child. Right? The one thing unites. Now, they may end up having conflict about how to take care of that child, but at least in the moment, they drop everything and run together to the child. The one thing unites. But in our nation, there's no one thing that unites us. We, we think differently about the nature of right and wrong, good and evil. So, in the end... What will unify a broken nation that can't agree? Power. This is why democracies tend to turn into dictatorships. We can't agree, and so the strongest person or the strongest party, not just in the nation but in the home too, rises to the top and takes charge. In the Civil War, it was the Union. We couldn't agree, so we fought. And we were stronger, we had more men to waste, and we won. But at what cost? I don't know. Are we headed to a civil war as a country? We don't know. Hopefully not. But there's no common mind, no common goal. And so often in the homes either. 
in our country. When I played soccer, I was on a team of individuals who were very, very different. Some of them were Christians, but not all of them were. We were unified, though, by one thing we had in common, the goal. We all wanted to score goals, and that's what brought us together. I was the goalie, so I wanted to stop goals. <laughs> but we all brought together, and if a nation, a family, a church loses sight of a common goal, division will always follow. And that's what our text today is going to be about in Philippians. Let's look, if you would, at Philippians now. Philippians 4, <coughs> verses 1 to 3. Paul writes this. I think it's up behind us. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. How? I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So this morning, we're going to wake, work our way through these three verses in two steps. First, we're going to look at the call for Christians to stand firm in verse 1. And second, we're going to go look at two ways that Christians are to stand firm in verses 2 and 3. The first way is be of the same mind in the Lord, have the same way of thinking. And second, help each other to be unified. So, point one, verse 1, the call to stand firm. Philippians 1, therefore my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord this way. Dear friends, now, before we look at Paul's actual call to stand firm, just notice a few things here. Notice that the verse 1 starts with the word, therefore. Whenever you see the word, therefore, in the Bible, I was taught, look and see what it's there for. Okay? It's connecting something that came before with what's following. So, verse one is building on top of what came before it. So because of everything Paul said in chapter 3, therefore, he says, stand firm in the Lord in what way? What way? Well, he's about to tell us. But first, let's look back at what he's saying in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he talks about the dangers to Christian joy. You could look back at 3, verse 1 and 2. He's saying, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. To write the same things is no trouble for me. I got no problem telling you this again and again and again. And it's safe for you. And then what does he go on to say? Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for those who are going to make it hard to stand firm in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. Have you ever looked at a river and you got to cross it? The Medawee is like this in a lot of places. And the rocks are slippery. <clears throat> And you step into the river, and the water hits your foot, and you're trying to cross, and it's the, you're on slippery rocks, all right? I tried to do this one time in the winter, and uh, down in the Medawee, and I ended up, uh, my, my walk in was cut short, because I, I got very cold very quickly. Don't, don't recommend it. 
All right? It's hard to stand firm. The rocks are slippery. Now, in the church, Paul says there's two slippery rocks that you got to watch out for. Don't stand on them, right? There's people who are out there teaching lies about Jesus, and he calls them the dogs. Look out for them. But there's also people, they might not be teaching bad things, but they're walking, they're living in a way that's sinful. And they can be a slippery rock too. If the Philippians spend too much time watching the lives of these people, they might be tempted to stop following Jesus. Paul warns about those earthly-minded people in the rest of Philippians 3, where he says, he talks about them in 18 and 19. They're not, their minds are set on earthly things, not Jesus. His solution we talked about last week, verse 17, keep your eyes on mature Christians and follow their way of life. Watch them as they follow Jesus. That's the way to keep your feet firm in the Lord. Now, he's about to explain one more way to stand firm in the Lord in verses 2 and 3. Keep your mind, have the same mind. But, right now, just notice verse 1. He's saying, guys, in light of everything that I've said in chapter 3, about the dangers to Christian joy, let me, let me know. Be, be assured, Satan is after your joy in the Lord. He doesn't want you to be celebrating and rejoicing in your salvation. He wants to create conflict and chaos. He wants to see you walking in sin. He wants you led away from the truth by heretics that he calls dogs. So stand firm in the Lord. Don't let your knees buckle under the pressure to walk away from Jesus. That's verse 1. Listen, he's, and, and he, he catches it in his love for them. Did you notice that? Who I love and long for. He's in jail. He wants to see them. They're his joy, he says. His, their salvation, the fact that they're saved, brings me great joy. He says there is crown. At, their, their salvation is like a gleaming crown that God set on top of his ministry that validated the fact that he was a true apostle of the Lord, that God really was working through his life. Is God really working through your life, Paul? Prove it. People are getting saved. It's like a, a crown. They're his crown, this beautiful crown that validates God's working. Not because he's special, but because the Spirit is working through him. Please, he says, stand firm in the Lord and in his mighty power. He said a similar thing. If you want, take Philippians and just flip back to chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. See, see here how Paul says something almost identical. He says to the church, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, whether I get out of prison or stay in prison, I may hear that you are, notice this, standing firm in one spirit. Which spirit? The Holy Spirit that makes them one. With one mind. Which mind? We'll see in a minute. The mind of Jesus. The same way of thinking. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Jesus beat death. What do we have to be afraid of? So stand firm. And then, he, this is now point two in verses two and three. We're going to see two ways to stand firm. First, 
He says, be on the same mind. And then second, help each other be on the same mind. So, verses 2 and 3. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So, verse 2 Paul actually names two women in the church of Philippi, and they must have been having a disagreement about something. Their names are, I don't even know if I'm saying this correctly, but Eodia, Eodia, and Syntyche. Here's a little side note. If you're reading the Bible out loud and you don't know how to pronounce a name, just say it with confidence. Nobody will know, right? <laughs> Look, that's how you say it? I say it this way. They're not here to tell us exactly how it was said. But this conflict must have been really serious for Paul to think that it was necessary to actually write their names down. Remember, the whole church is getting this letter. Can you imagine me reading this letter from Paul? He's in prison, and and he, he wrote a letter to our church, and the letter said, I plead with you, Brian, and I plead with you, Carl, agree in the Lord, and I'm reading this. <laughs> Everybody's like, Brian, Carl, you know? This is a group, this is a public thing. We don't really know, but apparently it's very serious. And he says, verse 2, be of the same mind. Be of the same mind in the Lord. This idea of having the same mind is a huge theme in the letter to the Philippians. If you have your Bible open, let's look back together at a few places where the phrase occurs. We already saw it in 127 and 28. Remember, stand firm, having the same mind and the one spirit. Well, Philippians 2, 1 to 5. This is like the heart of the letter, by the way. One to, Philippians 1 to 11, 2, 1 to 11. But here we read this. 2, 1 to 5. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. How? By being literally like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with others, here's the same word, have the same mind or mindset as Christ Jesus. So you hear all the times the word mind occurs here? (coughs) Verse 2, be like-minded. Have one mind. What's the mind? Verse 5, the mind of Jesus. So this is basically a way of saying, think like Jesus. How does Jesus think? He tells you. Nothing out of selfish ambition or pride. Humility dominates the theme of his life. Though he is the greatest being in the universe, he, in humility he empties himself of everything and gives his life on the cross so that believers might be saved. And Paul says... See the man on the cross? See him hanging there? 
have his mind. Think like him. Then in the rest of the letter, he gives us some examples of this mind, this way of thinking. In verses 19 to 24, he says, you want to look, you want to know what this mind looks like? Look at this young guy named Timothy. Verse 20, Paul says, I have no one else like-minded. Timothy has a mind just like Paul and just like Jesus, a mind that puts others first. In verses 25 to 30, Paul tells about another man with this mind, the mind of Christ. His name's Epaphroditus. He has risked his own life to serve Paul. He's risked his life to advance the gospel of Jesus. He's not thinking of his own interests. He's thinking of the interests of others, of Paul, of the church. And so Epaphroditus lays down his life. He almost dies for the advance of the gospel. This is the mind of a servant, the mind of Jesus, the mind that the Philippians should have. Finally, in chapter 3, Paul lists himself as an example of the, the type of mindset that Christians should have. Keep your eyes on me and on those who live as I do. He doesn't have a mind consumed with the things of the earth like the people mentioned in 3 verse 19. No, he has a mindset on heaven. Like we're going to learn about um, in Minneapolis. Ministering in light of our future hope. Our mindset on the hope of the gospel and a mindset on knowing the Lord. So now, he tells the Philippian ladies, these two ladies in chapter 4, have the same mind in the Lord. Think the same. And when they think the same, with the same mind, then Paul believes that their conflict will die down and fizzle out. Because when you think with the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will put others' needs before your own, even if that means you die on a cross. The vast majority of conflicts and tensions that we experience in our families, in our workplaces, even our nation, in our churches, and in every relationship that you can think of, it boils down to the fact that we're seeking our own interests first before the interests of others. Think of your kids. I was a kid once. What, what, what is behind the vast majority of fights and squabbles for kids? Little Johnny wants what little Billy has, and so he tries to take it. Okay? He puts his own interests above the interests of his friends. That toy looks like fun. I want that toy. And then it becomes not fun very quickly, right? And as we grow older, we, when you see your kids doing that, your heart should, yes, step into discipline, but be filled with compassion as well because we do the same thing. As we get older, we just become far more sophisticated versions of Johnny and Billy. Unless we are incredibly powerful we find that taking stuff that we want, just taking it, doesn't really work very well. So we learn better ways to get what we want. We manipulate by anger. We find anger is very effective in getting what we want, sometimes. Except it rips homes apart. Pouting. If anger doesn't work, we try to mope. 
oh, you don't love me. You should feel bad so that you do what I want. Bribing. I'll give you this if you give me that. Deception. We try it all. We also find that there's this great thing called money that can get us all sorts of things we want. And so we try to make money to serve our own interests at the expense of others. We go on. We could go on and on and on with examples of what causes conflicts. But so often, self-interest is behind them all. Now, I want to nuance this a second. And when, when a preacher nuances something, it means he slams some doors that minds could go down. Like, ooh, does he mean that? No, boom, shut that door, okay? All right, so what I, what I, the door I want to shut is that sometimes conflict arises because one person loved another person so much that they told that person the truth. In moments like these, the person that tells the truth is more interested in the health of someone's soul and in their eternal good than they are in enjoying an ongoing relationship with that person. Yeah, they want a relationship with that person, but they're willing to put the relationship on the line for their friend's eternal good. Sometimes, they say they're, 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 they're not willing to just keep on going in the relationship and pretend everything's okay as their friend goes deeper and deeper into sin. They say, no, that's wrong. You can't live that way. Sometimes telling someone the truth in love will blow a relationship up and cause incredible pain. Pain that could even feel like death. But you endure the pain. Why? Because you're putting their best interests above your own. Their best interests. They're, it is far more important that their soul gets right with Jesus, then that they continue to be your friend. And so you risk it. So that's not the type of conflict, though, that's going on in the church of Philippi. I don't think so. Otherwise, Paul would have spoken to it and said, Yodia, you're wrong. Repent. He has no problem doing that in other letters. No. I imagine the conflict was more like this. Okay, I'm going to tell a silly story about Yodi and Syntyche. This is not what I think it is, but it, it gives you an illustration of what the type of conflict might have been like. Imagine that Syntyche had been scrolling through Philippian, her Philippian Facebook feed, okay? And she read an article that had a like, really popular article that was blowing up about how eating pork was really bad for you. Being a health-conscious individual... She started spreading the word about how bad pork was for your health. But Yodia happened to be married to a pig farmer. And that kind of posed a little bit of a problem in the church. Syntyche is so passionate about how bad pork is that she starts making a moral issue in her mind. And she started to view Christians who ate pork as less spiritual because they're not taking care of their bodies putting all that bad pig into them and more and more people start listening to poor 
Hesintiki and poor Iodia's pork sales start going down. And their family's hurting for money, and so she gets upset. And she starts bad-mouthing Sintiki behind her back, talking about for all for how all her you know all for all her pig avoiding habits, she's definitely not the perfect specimen of health. And uh, she she could, you know, it's little good it's done her. You know, you see how these things go. Now imagine people start taking sides and calling names. And the church is ripping apart. Now this is obviously a silly story, okay? But this kind of thing, sadly, happens all the time in churches. No church is immune from it. So now look at what Paul's solution is for these two women. Have the same mind in the Lord. Remember who you are living for. You're living for the Lord. Have the same goal to know him, to help others know him. Agree to disagree and remember Jesus together. Remember that Jesus died for your brother, for your sister. That's how much he loved her. So are you willing to lay down your life for her? Don't attack her with your words. Pray for her good eternally. This, this is what Paul is meaning. Now let's look at verse 3. Paul writes, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Some of you may remember Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Apparently, there's a man in Philippi that Paul knows as his true companion. Some people think maybe it was the gospel writer Luke. Whoever this true companion is, um, he's asking this guy, as well as a man named Clement and other Christians in the church, he's asking him to help these ladies come to have the same mind, the mind of Jesus, which tells us that um, so many times in conflict, we need help. We think we can fix it on our own. Oh, we're fine. We're good. But often when we try to fix it on our own, it just gets worse. We need a third party, somebody who can hear each side and look at it objectively who can see both sides. That's why sports teams use referees, right? Somebody who's supposed to be objective and calls it as he sees it. That's a foul! And he could say, whoa, 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 whoa. The way you're talking right now at 5,000 decibels is not helping this person hear what you're really trying to say. And, and, and they can be a referee. All right? We need help sometimes in conflict. Not every conflict. But this one was bad enough. Paul is saying you need help. So as we conclude to, with some application, let's be a church here, a new creation church that is devoted to the type of unity that Paul wants to see between these two women. Unity in all areas. May we be a single-minded church having the mind of Jesus in our families, in our workplaces. 
As I said earlier, so many of our fights and squabbles, they happen because we're seeking our own interests, our own kingdom first, my comfort first, my wants first, my needs first, my kingdom come, my will be done in my home, in my business, in my work, in every sphere. But that's not the mind of Jesus. Unity comes, though, when we lift our eyes above ourselves and our own ambitions and our own hopes and dreams, and when we look around at other people who Jesus died to save, and we seek to love them and serve them and to build the kingdom of Jesus together. And so we ask each other, how can I imitate Jesus by serving you? Now, as I close out, the time i just want to conclude with a couple things i think a lot of churches get tempted to squabble about and maybe our church might get tempted to fight about in the future first we might be tempted to fight about music someday you ever heard of a church fighting about music if you're new to church maybe you know you guys may not have seen some of some of the what what people have called worship wars Ooh, that's a bit of a misnomer since worship is far more than just singing. But (coughs) tragically, churches fight over music sometimes, and it could even split the church. Often there's a generation gap involved. The older Christians like older songs, the newer Christians like newer songs, and, and so... They start to critique each other's songs. All those old songs are too, too dry, too stale, too words I don't understand. Or those new songs are just too bouncy, too repetitive. I can't sing them. They're, they're fluffy. They're not deep or median enough. You know, I've even heard people, uh, one that you could almost make it sound really good. You know, people say, well, um, there's, a, there's a song, you might have heard it on the radio called How Great Is Our God. You heard that song? How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. We shouldn't sing that in church. A Muslim could sing that. It doesn't mention Jesus. Well, guess what? The Psalms is the hymn book of the Bible, right? Or there's a lot of songs in the Bible to the Lord, and not, not all of them mention the Messiah Jesus, okay? We can sing songs, but if in the context of a worship service you're worshiping Jesus, then it makes sense to sing to God, the Father of Jesus. All right. It, just because a song doesn't mention Jesus or the cross doesn't mean that the church is denying Jesus or the cross. So that's just one silly example. You know, on, on one level, it sounds like, wow, ooh, man. Yeah, the song doesn't have Jesus in it. Maybe it is a bat. Oh, does it have Jesus in it? Oh, yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of a different one. Oh, you know the song I'm thinking of that, that I heard the critique about is the song, You're the God of the City. You're the God of the city. Have you heard that one? You're the God of the city. You're the God of this nation. Yeah. But anyway, there is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. That's the one I've heard criticized. Regardless, it's true. There is no one like our God. And we could sing that and not feel guilty. But churches fight about music constantly. And my hope is that as a church, we'll always be a church that loves to sing songs that our brothers and sisters in Christ love to sing, all right? It might not give us the same experience to sing a song um, that someone else likes to sing, but we love to see that they're enjoying it. 
And so with that, listen, I'm kind of a limited musician. So I may say, I don't know if I could play that. Maybe you could play it. But if there's a song that you want to sing as a church, and you're like, I love this song and I wish we'd sing it, talk to me. As long as it's true, okay, I've got no problem singing it. So talk to me. If you're like, I wish we could do this song. And I might say, you know what, at this point, this musician, I, I just couldn't do it. It'd be a train wreck, all right? Because rhythm, really tricky rhythm can be tricky. But regardless, we love to sing more songs if it would bless you. Another thing we might fight about, maybe more relevant in the near future, our church building. We're planning on putting a couple apartments upstairs. Let's say that one person in the church says, I really think that the apartments should have carpet. And another person says, no, carpet is too expensive and it holds the smell. They should have wood floors. It's cheaper. We just sand them down and stain them. And then if there's a mess, it's easier to clean up. And you know. But somebody's like, no, carpet's softer. and We won't have loud sounds coming down. We, we can go back and forth. This is a wisdom area, right? Somebody might say, carpet's more money. The wood floor is cheaper. If we do wood floor, we'll have more money to give to God. You know? Oh, they pulled the spiritual card. <laughs> now they've got God on their side. Oh, dear. Or we get ready to buy an appliance. And somebody says, I think we should buy this new. And get the warranty in case something breaks. Pay that extra $200. And another person says, no, no, no. This is God's money we're spending. We need to get it used. Let's look on Facebook Marketplace for a washing machine. And the other person's like, yeah, but then what if it breaks after the first year? And water comes running. And you, know, you, you see how these arguments go? Come on, you really want to spend full price on a stove? We're spending God's money, you know? These are the type of things churches fight about all the time. The color of the carpet, the color of the walls. By the kindness of God, there was hardly any dis dis disagreements as we built this building, okay? That was God's kindness. There was a few things in the kitchen that I jumped ahead and did, and uh, I sent an email out, should we get this sink? And... It came, and now all of you who have used the sink realize it was too small. <laughs> Oops. I think several people, maybe even Karen, said, do we really want a sink this small? And I was like, I think it's good. Oh, well. Shows I don't. It's the last time I'll make that decision, right? So, but my point is, guys, that could be a place we fight about. And what makes these things so dangerous is that we start to bring God into the equation and we, we dress up our opinions as moral absolutes and we baptize them in the language of godliness. All right? So here, if I can take my opinion, what I really feel strongly about, and baptize it in the language of this is what God wants, then I can use God talk 
to manipulate people into doing whatever I want to do. Do you understand? Like, if I, if I can convince you that this is God's way, even though the Bible's not clear about it, if I can be convince people that this is God's way, then if you argue with me, you're ar- you're ar- your problem is God, you know? And, and, and the sad thing is pastors, there's a temptation for pastors to do that. They know their Bible pretty well, and they can, they can pull out a verse and twist it a certain way and make people think this is God's way. God loves carpet. God doesn't care. <laughs> All right. So my prayer is that as a church, we're able to avoid conflicts like this by one, preferring each other's opinions in the Lord. By rushing, second, to affirm each other's ideas and consider them fairly. We might not take your idea, we might not go with it, but as a group, we want to consider all ideas. Three, by fighting to have the mind of Jesus in and through it all, a mind that puts others' needs before our own. And four, by being really humble about what we think God's will is until we've gotten a lot of feedback from the family of Jesus. We're all listening to God together. In our leadership meetings, okay, if I come in to the leadership meeting with Brian and Carl, and let's say our wives are involved, and I'm like, guys, I had this vision from God last night. He talked to me, and he said, we've got to paint the walls blue upstairs. You know, this kind of thing happens. You know, I had this vision. They're going to be like, well, he didn't give us that vision. (laughs) So maybe we need to take that vision and wonder what you ate for supper that made you had that dream. Listen, we strive for unity in all things as a church family. And I just want to close by reading a couple verses from the letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. May we be a church that honors each other, that jumps to serve each other, and to listen to each other's opinions and ideas. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus, who died to save us and serve us as life, and who rose to set us free from death and hell. And I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ together as a church family, that we would be one in our love for Jesus and our desire to serve him and to serve each other. And I pray that you preserve our unity as a church, that we would be united about the truths of who Jesus is and about what he did and why he came, and that we would hold our opinions with open hands quick to jump to serve another. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.